I'm Guy Michaels, voiceover artist and director of the training platform, VoiceOver Kickstart. In this, our second episode, I'm talking with Tamsin Collison, one of the world's leading audiobook directors. Amongst other topics, we cover the jazz of storytelling and what skills pro narrators need to succeed. For more golden advice and resources, head to voiceoverkickstart.com. Hi, Tamsin. Thanks very much for coming on with me today. Let's start off just finding out a little bit about your journey into audio drama direction and audiobook direction production. The great J word, yes. <laughs> well, I started um, after I, I, I read English at university and then I was uh, lucky enough to land a job in the BBC radio drama department uh, working with a senior drama director called Martin Jenkins. And I was his lieutenant for about three years, three or four years. And uh, so I learned on the job, really, because um, he was a, he was a master of his art. And so um, I didn't go to go to a college to learn how to do it. But I learned by watching and assisting on all kinds of productions for about three and a half years. And then I was ready to produce myself. And so I left the BBC and joined an independent company. Um, where I started to do the occasional reading for Women's Hour. Um, and then I went freelance. And um, yeah, I <laughs> just shows you can sometimes make your own luck. I was I was covering for somebody at uh, Thorson's, HarperCollins, and um, audiobooks were quite new in those days. It was a, a, a growing industry, but it was quite a small part of the publishing portfolio. So, you know, as always, the audio producer, publishing producer was tucked in a office at the end of the corridor. You know, nobody mm. knew where she was. Um, and just as my temping job came to an end, I thought, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And so I went down to find this lady in her cubbyhole and I said, I've got four years at the BBC and four years at an indie company and I'm would really like to be considered for your stable of audio directors. And she said the famous, oh, well, thank you very much. We'll keep you on file. Um, and then they did come back to me about six months later. And I'm ashamed to say the first book I produced was a Jeffrey Archer. But we've all got one of those in the in the cupboard. Um, and it started from there. So I started off working um, for Pan Macmillan, HarperCollins, then Penguin and... Um, Hachette, Time Warner, uh, Random House. Um, I was, I was in the when when the when it started. Um, publishers were feeling their way, and so you got passed around between different audio publishers who didn't know what they were doing and needed people who, who did know what to do. Um, now, of course, it's huge, and most publishing houses have a, an audio department and audio rights are sold separately to the book rights. And it's all, it's, they've realized what big business it is. Um, and I've also been um, producing for Audible for about five or six years. Um, I'm not on the staff, but I do quite a lot of work for them. So it's just sort of grown. <laughs> it's sort of as, as the industry's grown and, and, and escalated. Um, I've been very lucky to be, sort of on the crest of it um yeah I mean that's right place right time yeah yeah but but I was really nervous of knocking on that door 
I didn't feel I had imposter syndrome and I thought she's mm-hmm. just going to laugh at me because I haven't done it before. So my first piece of advice would be, you know, don't be, they can only say no. They can only say no. If you don't ask, they're not going to come and find you. Yeah. And now, of course, the audiobook industry is massive. It certainly is. Yeah. And and growing year on year, you know. We're, yeah. We're, when I started, people would ask me, oh, is that for the blind? And yep. nobody's asked me that, I would say, in 10 years. Because, of course, when I started at the, um, many years ago, uh, the, everybody knew about talking books for the blind. And the RNIB was basically the place that did audiobooks. Um, and they have a wonderful service. It still runs, I think, that, you know, they, you can record newspapers and magazines. And I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe any any title that a registered blind person wants to hear, they can apply to the RNIB to get an audio book of. Um, I think that's right. Um, so they still provide a really important service, but it used to be that RNIB and libraries were the main takers of audiobooks. And yes, nobody's asked me that in a long time now. How has the process changed from, from if you can think back to the first audiobook that you directed to the most recent? I would say the process is exactly the same. The the content has changed. I mean, when I started, it was cassettes, <laughs> you know, and you do four... Uh, four sides in a day of double cassettes. Um, and now everything's in the cloud. So I used to get some work abridging books. I abridged all 18 of the Marjorie Allingham, Albert Campion thrillers, which was a challenge to get them all down to three CDs um, when some of them are 100,000 words and three CDs is kind of 36,000 words. <laughs> if you're Philip Franks and 34,000 words, if you're anybody else, <laughs> different readers have different speeds. Um, but now that everything can be um, stored in the cloud, all the books are unabridged. Everybody wants the whole book. Um, And certainly that had a knock-on effect when it started in that everybody got pay cuts, you know, because you were now doing the whole book for the same fee that you'd been doing half the book abridged before. Um, But it's sort of evened itself out now and then people are uh, sort of used to it but uh, yes so I would say (laughs) I'm currently producing War and Peace unabridged for Audible (laughs) and uh, that would never have happened 15 years ago because nobody would have been able to afford to put it out it would have been oh god knows 40 cassettes or 30 CDs or something, and that hard copy would be too expensive for people to buy. So, how long will it be the final product? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. We're halfway through, it's 17 books, and uh, we have done eight and a half books. So, we are exactly halfway through, Um, and probably 14 or 15 days we've done of recording. But, you know, it's not, it, it then is edited down and you know, with all the Russian pronunciations and whatnot, it's not the speediest read because you're constantly checking things and looking things up. So um, I'm not sure how long it's going to be, but um, I did uh, Dombey and Son a couple of years ago, which is 
I think Dickens's second longest book. I think Bleak House might be the longest, but Dombey and Son, which is fantastic, it runs it a pretty close second. And I think Dombey and Son was about 950 pages. And I think that came in at 41 hours, final, final read. Um, and it was read by Owen Teal, who was magnificent, absolutely magnificent. His first well, audio book, it's like going I straight in at the top. Yeah, yeah. I can't promise that I'm going to listen to War and Peace <laughs> when it's finished. Uh, but what would be, out of all the, the, the audio books that you've directed, what would be your favourite that you would recommend Oh, what a question. I've done about 450. <laughs> um, I, I think of the recent ones I've done, I would say um, uh, I, I was lucky enough to direct Tracy Ullman reading Wise Children by Angela Carter a couple of years ago. And that was joyous. From I mean, it's her, by far her best and funniest book. And it's full of grotesques and mad characters. And, and Tracy Ullman was completely brilliant. She had everything from sort of Cockney landladies through to, um, you know, there's an L.A. film star in it called Daisy Duck. And you can just imagine what she does with the voices for that. So that was a riot. Um, mo more recently, um, I did a book called uh, the Counterplot, which I absolutely loved, which was uh, by a poet called Di George and is a historical novel about um, Ben Johnson and his role, his, his, his alleged role in uncovering the gunpowder plot. And it was read by an actor called Harry Myers, who does a lot of voice work. He's basically a voice actor these days. Um, and he got to play everybody from Shakespeare to James IV to James, James VI to Guy Fawkes. Um, and everything in between. And Guy Fawkes' accent was Yorkshire mixed with Spanish, which was a challenge. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a it's a ripping yarn. It's absolutely fantastic. So, and that is an Audible original, which means that it's a book that's not in print. So you can only you can only get it if you subscribe to Audible. I'm 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 afraid, but it is def if you are an Audible subscriber, um, I really recommend that. It's it's great. If someone was interested in becoming an audio book director, not a narrator, let's put that aside for one moment. What would be their route today? Oh, I don't know. That, that's an awful thing to say, but it's like, you know, if I could have my time again, I'd probably try and be a Foley artist because I, within radio drama, I just, I love creating and inventing and um, sound effects and I have no idea how you become a sound a, a, a Foley artist. Um, for those of you who don't know, Foley is putting on the sound effects in a movie in, in post-production. So it's live sound effects. And we have the same in radio drama. Um, it tends to be called spot effects or live sound effects for audio, but it's the same thing. So it's footsteps and cocking guns and pulling corks out of bottles and things that you need to control in post-production. You do the sounds again afterwards and lay them on. And it just, it, it, it's the best fun. <laughs> it really is. Um, and again, I think if you're doing that, then you, you know, some people start in sound studios as the runner and then they do a bit of engineering and then they, they start to play around in the sound effects box. Um, but I don't, you, I don't think you can go and train somewhere to be a Foley artist. And in the same way with, um, as, a, as an audio director, 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I think if you've worked in audio at all as a producer, in audio, producer and director are the same thing because the budgets are so small that there's never never enough money for a producer and a director. So if you hear somebody talking and saying they're an audio producer, they actually mean that they produce and direct the programmes that they make, usually. Um, I think if you've had any kind of experience working in audio, your listening skills are heightened to a point, your critical listening skills. Um, so you know, as you listen to somebody reading a script, um, whether or not they're engaging with it, whether or not they're connecting with the listener, and it's your job to make them do that if they're not. Um, I think it also you need enough confidence in your own response to what you're hearing to be able to instantly interrupt people and say, actually, no, that didn't sound ironical. It sounded patronising and I think it needs to sound ironical. You know, you've got to be confident in your understanding of stories and brave enough to pull someone back if they're missing the point of something. Um, you've got to be supportive. You've got to be encouraging. You've got to be really well prepared. You need, I think you need a pretty wide vocabulary and a lot of um, resources to look stuff up. If you, you know, you, you are the person with whom the buck stops. So if somebody says cupola and you know, it's cupola, you've got to correct them in a tactful and polite way. Or if you see the word C-U-P-O-L-A and you're not sure because you haven't seen it before, you can't just assume that the actor's going to know because they're usually faking it. And <laughs> I'd say 60% of them haven't looked it up. They've just kind of read it and mm. thought, well, that's probably what it is. And so you've got to take responsibility for every single word. You know what it means. You know how to pronounce it. And you are confident enough in your own judgment to interrupt someone who's in the middle of something um, dramatic to go, I'm really sorry, it's cupola, not cupola. That matters as much as the fun bits of directing the, you know, making it funnier or making it sadder or um, making sure that the characters are consistent. It's really about um, really hot focus and listening and and responding in the moment and also being able to give direction in the moment to an actor who can then who making sense of what it is that you want immediately um rather than leaving an actor to go away and explore and consider and come back with a response because we don't work like that in audio at all really not in drama not in commercials not in audiobooks yeah. it's what can we create in the room in the moment together that is the best it can be. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't think there's a school for that. I would no. think there are probably as many different routes to doing this gig as there are people that do it. Yeah. I so mean, it requires not a, very, a, very, not a very helpful answer, uh, I'm afraid. No, it, it requires a very specific set of skills. And I, I just mm. can't think of a, of a, of a proving ground for it. I can't think of a, of a scenario in which you would be able to prove I've directed, I've tried it out. You know, I'm not like an actor doing fringe theatre who then progresses to another level of theatre. I just can't really think how that would, how that would happen. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I've been involved uh, through a, a connection between Lambda, where I am a, a tutor, and Audible. Um, we've had a, a scholarship sponsorship scheme for three years, and part of the 
point of that has been to bring writers and directors from theatre into audio and give them a chance to write and direct an audio play with people like me um, mentoring them, using the students at the school to try stuff out, but um, equally learning from people like me and the engineer um, how to do it, how to how to create sound pictures, how to interact with actors that you don't know very well quickly, get their trust, get a result. Um, and, and again, be confident in your own judgment of what it is you want to hear and then find a way of making that happen. It's very dictatorial. <laughs> um, so if you have too much kind of, um, I'd like you to, uh, shall we all just explore how that might be? And you look at the clock and 15 minutes have gone out of your schedule and you haven't recorded anything. We don't work like that in audio. As you'll know, you know, you you hire a studio for a day and you have to have finished what you've got to do by the end of the day, because otherwise it's going to cost you a whole lot more to hire the studio for another day. Schedule is king and you're constantly clock watching and you're constantly having to make fast decisions and compromises and say, oh God, I'd really like to do that again, but we've got to get on because we're losing an actor at lunchtime and they're not coming back. So that'll just have to do. I think sometimes when you hear a radio play that ends really badly, it's because they got to half past five and they still had three scenes left to do and they just had to read them through and record them. I'm just sure that's done. the case. Yes. Because yeah. they spent too much time on a, on a scene in the morning, you know. Yeah, because you, you you are well, you're just not getting the rehearsal that you that you would for for, for a piece of theatre. And no, for no, the... you don't. Um, something that occurred. So I've been working um, on online with people directing remotely plays and books um, through through the year, um, and I was lucky enough to do a big Jane Austen production, a whole a full drama or a half read, half dramatized production of Mansfield Park in in August. And I had six days to do 75 scenes with people under, literally they were under duvets in a heat wave from Newcastle to Devon, all dialing into a audio forum where we were, where we were acting together in sound only. And literally some of the scenes we had sort of 10, 15 minutes to do with people who'd never met each other before, couldn't see each other and had to create relationships instantly. And I said, well, the thing is, if we were in a studio and we had a little bit more time and um, we could sort of block the scenes and we could um, see each other and we could um, create a vibe in the room and then record, that's kind of like being in an orchestra of me, like the conductor of an orchestra. And you all, you know, we've talked through all the parts, we know what everyone's going to do. And then we all play together. Working remotely but I think also largely working in audio generally is like being in a jazz band. So everybody's got, because I don't know if, if the listeners are aware, but most audio is done with a script in your hand um, or on a stand in front of you. We don't learn books by heart. We don't learn plays by heart. We juggle paper or iPads or whatever it might be. And we have to lift text that we don't know very well off the page and up to the mic and communicate with our listeners in the moment. Now, if everybody's got the script for a scene from Mansfield Park and we haven't rehearsed it, but they can't see each other and they're scattered all over the country, it is the equivalent of climbing up onto a rostrum with a jazz band where you've all got the same chart of music and the same dots and nobody knows what anyone's going to do. And then if you're working um, remotely 
with headphones just listening to your fellow actors who you don't know and can't see, the effect is that the characters in the play talk to you down the line. You don't know them as anything other than the characters that they're playing. So you can hear the other characters in the scene and you can see what your response is meant to be, but you don't know how the lines are going to come to you. And what's exciting is to be front foot and respond to what you hear as the character you're playing. And it's amazing what results you can get instantaneously if actors are brave enough and excited enough to be that front foot and experimental and just go for it. And at that point, it's the director's job to catch the voices in the air, catch the magic kind of whistling past and go, well, that was amazing. That was funny. You missed that point. We've got to pick that up again. Um, But the speed actually... um, kind of informs the the creativity of the actors, I think, sometimes. They haven't got time to second guess. They haven't got time to question. The really important thing is that you are then working with actors who are well prepared and turn up with a performance and an idea. And they've actually prepared, they've actually gone through and thought about it. Because an, an actor once said to me a really good description of audio drama, or and I think it applies equally to any any kind of creative recording, poetry, prose, drama, is the actor brings choices, the director chooses. And that yeah, goes for have, every character. Have ideas. Yeah, have ideas. goes for every character in a book. If you're playing, if you're reading a Charles Dickens and you've got 75 characters, if you turn up on day one and go, oh, I don't really know what to do with this one, it's already a disaster. If you turn up and go, oh, I thought I'd make Magwitch uh, a Liverpudlian, and you go, well... He's he's actually probably Somerset or Kent. Um, oh well, I want him to be a Liverpool. There's no connection between Madmuk and Liverpool. Um, maybe not. Um, you know, you've got to have some give. It has to be a dialogue, and that's where it's really important, as much as possible, to work with a director as an actor. I think as a reader, a lot of people yeah. do home recordings on their own, you know, um, and they do very, very good work. They, they do some fantastic books and um, I have much respect and admiration for them, but you can't beat having a second pair of ears for a performance, particularly if it's a difficult book. You just can't because some you've got a sounding board. You've got someone saying, mm, that character doesn't, that character sounds too old. That character sounds like two girls talking together, you need to make one of them. I've given the direction before, can you make him sound fatter? And it's worked, you know, um, you need somebody to respond to what you're doing and to encourage you to be more creative and more, um, to have more fun with it. Perhaps if you're, if you're just slogging through a book on day five and you just lost the will to live. Yeah. Somebody so goes, the, the actor like has to, to <laughs> yeah, the actor has to come. I mean, audiobook or or audio drama, they have to come prepared, but oh, also they have you. to come. They have to come pre- be be prepared to be flexible. Yes, be prepared Absolutely. to improvise, improvise. But you just happen. You have to say those words in that order. Yes, but you're going to improvise it. Yes, absolutely. You're not a better writer than whoever wrote the book, and our job is to read the book. So you cannot approximate, but within that, you can interpret the characters on the page however you like I mean sometimes the actors sometimes the author comes along when obviously not these days but um sometimes the author likes to come to the studio and 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 listen in but mostly they don't um and uh you're left to create the world of the book 
by yourself. It's such a privilege. It's such an honor. Um, so yeah, I mean, another thing I'd say that you need to that that you need to be if you're going to be an audiobook producer or indeed an audio drama producer or a commercials producer or any kind of creative audio director is you need to be a decent reader aloud yourself. And I think you need to be a musician. I think you need to be a musician. You need to hear cadence. You need to hear phrase. You need to hear rhythm. You need to hear pace. It's your job to conduct the actor. Mm-hmm. And if you say, no, no, that beat, we need a longer beat there before he responds yep. because you need time for him to think about it before he answers back. And that is both when you've got several actors in the room or when you've got one actor who's playing everybody, you still need to conduct them. You still need to feel that rhythm. And again, you know, for people who are self-producing, home-producing, they need to be musicians too because they've got to do their own edit. They've got to do their yeah. own pacing. And, you know, you no conversation is all one speed, um, you know. and you Some of the best say, voiceovers I've ever worked with in any genre are also musicians. Yeah, Some absolutely. 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 Well, the guy, Harry Myers is a, is a musician, the guy who read the Ben Johnson book and you can tell, you know, um, and again, I think that that jazz analogy that I made also feeds into that, you know, listening to other cues, picking up from other people. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, knowing, knowing your scales, scales are for fish as a guitarist, <laughs> scales are fish, no, but knowing your scales and then just knowing how to just jam. Yeah. Absolutely. You couldn't put it better. It is, it is jamming. It's jamming with other people who know how to do it. And that, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've sung with jazz bands and it's like flying. It's the best thing in the world, but you don't know when you count them in where it's going, what's going to happen. (laughs) Sometimes it's a catastrophe, but you know, we're lucky because then we do another take and hopefully it will be better. But um, yeah, you, you can't, you can't be precious in audio. And that's the other thing. Oh man, people who say, oh, but I I can't bear the sound of my own voice, you know, and you go, well, what the hell are you doing being a voice actor then? You know, you're going to pay other people to listen to you talking. You've got to accept the voice you have. And it doesn't mean, no, none of us sound like we think we do. Most of us sound reedier and higher and more nasal than we think we do because we hear ourselves with our internal resonators making us sound richer and sexier than we do. But it's what you do with it, you know. I mean, going back to jazz, you're one of the best jazz singers um, of the 20th century was a, a woman called Blossom Deary, who was an American, and she had a voice like this. What a night. Fortune came in, came inside, looking just the way I hoped you'd be. I've, I've totally screwed up the lyrics, but that's her voice. It's terrible. But her phrasing... And her connection with the audience is such that she packed out nightclubs for 20 years in New York. Huge deal because of what she did with what she had. So, um, you know, sometimes voices can be overproduced, as we were talking about earlier, um, before we started the discussion properly. You know, people can be too careful with their voices and too, um, and you can be more excited by someone with a, a less substantial voice if they connect with you. If, if you can, if you feel you're being acted at or read at, it can. And that's you and off. then we, we're back. We're back on music again. But that there's it's that connection again. I remember seeing BB uh, King at uh, Wembley about fifteen, maybe twenty years ago, and um, there he is, sat down, 
I don't know how many people, 15, 20,000 people. And he was, he was telling stories between songs. And not only was he musically captivating, but the stories he was telling between songs, it was like he was telling to you. It was, it was one-to-one. And that skill came through in every note he played. And, and there we have it. We're back on music yeah. again. It's, well, it, we're back on music, but we're also back on communication. Yeah. And, you know, there's no point just making a beautiful sound if you don't touch people. Um, so you've got to make a connection. And, and, you know, the best people, you know, you can fill Carnegie Hall and make people think that you're just talking to them if you if you intend to connect, if you just sit there jamming by yourself and people might as well get their coats. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the guitarist thing again, because, you know, there's more power, more passion, more interest, more communication conveyed in the single note played by him than in the widdly diddliness of some guitarists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's just, there's too many notes. Yeah. As, well, uh, the be- the- I, if you pull you back to singing and there's an American singer called Shirley Horn, um, pianist and singer. And there's a recording of Georgia on my mind that she does. And I think it's, I can't remember, but I think it's almost four minutes for 32 bars. It's the, but there is a brush drum in the back and it's magical. It's just once round. Um, I've never heard anything so slow <laughs> and you, you don't want her to stop. It's incredible because she's storytelling. Talking of stories, if, um, if someone wants to be a storyteller, they want to be an audio book narrator. There are many routes, as you know, to this. Um, and as you've already discussed a lot, there's lots of people out there who are very, very successfully producing uh, audiobooks at a very high level. But if someone was to start off in that today, um, if they're an actor and they're considering audiobook narration, what would be your recommendations on the route and also the skills or techniques that they should actually be working on? Okay, well, I'm again, you know, as with all these things in this business we call show, um, there are a million different routes and a million doors that get slammed in your face and you just go, how, how do you, how, what do you have to do to catch a break in this town is something that goes from, you know, getting into a musical to being the voice of British Airways. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, to quote, um, <laughs> to quote Hamlet, the readiness is all, um, don't wait to get a gig and then try and figure out how to do it because there are a million people who already know how to do it, who will do it better than you if that's Mm -hmm. your level of preparedness. I would say um, read aloud as much as you can, uh, as many different kinds of material as you can. Um, You know, pick things up, just read them aloud. Get used to lifting text off the page. Get used to making shapes with your mouth. Get used to reading for a long time. I mean, I I had to produce a Christmas carol a couple of weeks ago and wasn't sure how long it was going to take to record. So I read a Christmas carol aloud one evening um, and it took me three and a half hours to read the whole book 
um, and it was uh, 90 pages. I mean, you know, pages as big as, you know, that's not a great yardstick because it depends how many words there are on a page, but it took me about three and a half hours. And yes, by the last page, my I, I talk for a living, but, you know, my mouth was making very strange shapes on some of the words on the last couple of pages because it was tired. So, um, you know, the more you've got those muscles working, the more stamina you've got, um, the better job you're going to do when the opportunity comes up. I would say when you do get a gig, be prepared, read the book, re- ideally read the book three times, read the book, then read the book and prep it. And then if you have time, read the book once more and make sure all your prep makes sense and you haven't missed anything. If you do that, you will nail it when you go into studio. Um, as a director, I am deeply grateful when actors have done their own pronunciation checks. I find it, you know, I assume that they're not going to have, and I do my best to get the, the pronunciations checked and, and like over to them in advance of a recording. If I've bothered to do that, look at them, practice them, write them in the margins of the scripts that you're doing. Don't just say, oh yeah, yeah, I got the pronunciations and open them in front of me because your mouth will not be used to the shapes of those words. Um, We already talked about, you know, have ideas about characters. Don't use an accent you're not very good at. Be honest about the accents you can do. I had somebody say that they were not terribly good at American on day three of a three-day book where there was about to be a 30-page conversation between two guys, one of whom was American. But the actor Mm. hadn't prepped the book and didn't know that was coming and did a kind of reasonable stab of the first page. So I thought maybe we're going to be all right. And we so weren't. It was, you know, nope, that's Australian. Nope, that's South African. Nope, you don't Choose a continent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you just go, you've had this book for six weeks and you didn't bother to go through it and see that that was coming. And if you had seen that was coming and you couldn't do it, you should have fessed up. I've had actors pull out of things um, having read the book before, you know, they've said yes to the job, they've read the book and gone, actually, I can't do that. I've got so much more respect for that than for someone who rocks up with it under their arm and then suddenly goes, oh no, can't do German when you get to that page. You know, that that's really unprofessional. So, um, yeah, I mean, for my money, I've I've been very lucky. I've done several of the recent Audible Dickens collection, unabridged Dickens. I mentioned Dombey and Son earlier, but um, Dickens is the best gym. My God, he's the best gym. If you want to get your muscles going, you want to get your brain going, you want to get your imagination going, have either an anthology or a Dickens novel by your bed and just pull pull up a random page and read it aloud. Get your mouth around the language, understand the inverted sentence structures, get the articulation and the stamina going. Because if you can read that stuff aloud, you can read anything aloud. Um, but don't just sit there wistfully going, oh, I'd really love to do an audio book. And then the job mm-hmm. comes along it will hit you like a train. You need to be match fit to do a good yep. job. I've lost count of the amount of um, voiceovers that I work with who say they want to do audiobooks. And then when you challenge them over, well, do you listen to audiobooks? And have you ever done you know, extensive reading out loud? They haven't. And it's the same thing when people say, I really want to do game, gaming. I want to work in the, in, in the gaming world. Okay, well, have you ever, what games do you play? Well, no, I don't really play any games. 
not that you have to, but you at least need to be aware of those worlds. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're so right to, to say, you know, listen, listen, work out what's a good audio, but work out why you've turned that off, you know, after three pages. Is it because you didn't like the voice? Is it because you didn't believe the narrator? Is it because, you know, the, the reader breathed between every three or four words because they don't actually have the breath support to get through a whole book? I mean, God, shoot me now. I couldn't listen to more than a page and a half of that, but I've I've heard it. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, the the thing, one of the things that which I think voiceovers in general, um, narrators in general, w- would underestimate is cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. Well, I'm just sitting down. I'm just sitting down and reading. Yeah, but you still need to have great control of your breath. Also, you know, the good readers um, are physical. The best readers, when you look up, they are waving their hands around like nobody's business. And as they change from character to character, their physique is changing. They're emphasising the points that they're making to the microphone with gesture. We talk with our hands. If you want to learn how to lose all expression in your voice, just put your hands behind your back and try and talk to people. And particularly if you then say you cannot use your hands and you cannot raise your eyebrows. Now talk to me. And you know, it, it, within 30 seconds, it's become unbelievably dull. So the animation to make a book, and it's not just fact, fiction, factual stuff. If you've ever explained to somebody the geographical spread of teak trees across Eastern Asia, you, I, God, I've probably really shown my ignorance and there aren't teak trees in Eastern Asia, but you know what I mean? That if you're trying to explain something that you as an actor might not be an expert on, but you are speaking on behalf of someone who is an expert. You've got to sound like you know what you're meaning and you've got to communicate information to people who do not have that information in a way that they can understand it. And I challenge you to do that without moving your hands. So it's actually quite an aerobic way of working. It's not just sitting in a heap for eight hours at a time if you're doing it right. Certain um, levels of uh, the military and the police are actually taught to do that. They're taught to put their hands behind their back because that takes away um, certain level of expressiveness and it neutralises you when you're communicating with someone. That's interesting. But we need to be able to do the opposite of that. Absolutely, we do. Oh, and and I, yeah, and I, there's another little tip for people. You know, non-fiction is harder to read than fiction. Oh, Almost. Why? Because it's not written to be read aloud. Yeah, it's not written. It's often written by academics who are not sparing or careful or kind with their sentence structures. So, you know, you've got kind of a nine, a nine line. Well, Dickens does nine lines at a time, but you've got a nine line sentence with parentheses and footnotes and see this and quotes of titles and things within one within one sentence. Mm. And you as a reader have got to be able to, to pick out where the point is. And that everything else needs to be suspended until you get to the point. And that can be four or five clauses later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a bunch of bullet points. Yeah. Or, or you know, acad- academics, you know, use words like paradigmatical, you know, and you've got to kind of look it up and know what it means and then sound like you know what you're talking about. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it is more unwieldy uh, language on the whole nonfiction. Um and again, you have to sound like an expert. So if you're doing a book on mindfulness, you may not practice mindfulness, but you've got to sound like someone who A, understands mindfulness and B, is encouraging people to practice mindfulness. You're speaking on behalf of the author. So it is kind of an acting game, even when you're doing a nonfiction. You don't 
act the book because that would be awful, but you have to inhabit the book to explain on behalf of the author to the listener. You know, there are a million different ways of reading a book. I think that's the, the the key thing. You do there's no such thing as just reading a book. You got to sit down in front of the microphone, knowing what you're trying to say to people, what you want them to take away from what you're saying, whether you want them to be entertained, whether you want them to be informed, whether you want them to be educated, whether you want them to be comforted, whether you want them to laugh, cry go out and start mountaineering because you didn't it change your life whatever it might be that the book is about you are speaking for the author so you you've got to inhabit it without getting in the way of it does that make sense most definitely Tamsin in your professional career audiobook production and radio drama morphing into audio drama production has changed dramatically as we bring this to a close, how do you envision, envision those two genres developing? What's the next stage for audio drama and audio books? Goodness me. Um, it's a good question. I, I mean, when people started, um, when I started 20 years ago or more, um, you know, contracts would be for uh, all recorded media. And now it's, you know, for all recorded media plus media not yet invented, because when recorded media in in the before the rise of the Internet was just tapes or cassettes or records or airplay. And suddenly there's all this cyber stuff as well. So they're now writing contracts that say, um, you know, plus things that haven't yet yet happened. I think the most encouraging thing for our industry is that we have, well, really since television arrived, we've been the Cinderella of showbiz. We've been in the little box in the corner of the room that, you know, your mum listens to the archers on and your dad listens to Gardner's question time on and really, you know, what's the point without pictures? Um and we've, you know, all been banging the drum going, in radio, the pictures are better and you, you can use your imagination and it's portable and it's, you know, <laughs> you've got autonomy as an as a participant when you listen to audio without pictures. Um, and as a writer, if you want to have a fleet of spaceships, you just write, oh, look out of the window, there's a fleet of spaceships and you can do it. Whereas if you write a film, you've got to actually create a fleet of spaceships. <laughs> and, you know, they did the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings for Radio 4 in a morning with a load of tea trays and car keys and people <laughs> rushing around the studio, bashing each other on the head with them. Whereas it took Peter Jackson a year and a half to make the same scene, you know. Um, sorry, I'm going off piece slightly. Um, <laughs> yes, I, what I was going to say was, so we used to be the Cinderella and it was quite the sort of the unglamorous bit. Um, and certainly when Walkman started and music became portable, um, I think people thought, well, you know, music's going to kill the spoken word and, um, audio's under threat, radio's under threat, nobody's listening, listenerships are dying off. Um, and actually, in the last 20 years, the the reverse has happened. I think people are listening to the spoken word more than they have done in decades. Because it's portable, you can download, you can listen to podcasts, you can listen to radio programs, you can listen to audio books um, on the run, or you can listen to them while you're 
doing housework or if you're just like going, going to bed at night and you like to be read to, the human voice is very comforting. And there are a million great stories to listen to. And I think that, you know, the consuming this stuff is is on the rise. I mean, there's a huge um, project on, on Audible at the moment called Sandman, Sandman, which was Neil Gaiman's graphic novel series in the 80s and 90s. It's just been brought to life by Dirk Maggs, who's kind of the wizard of all things audio drama. I did all the Spider-Mans and the hitchhiker's guides and you know he's just a kid with a toy box when it comes to an audio studio um but he um you know he was the person that they went to and said right we're going to make this graphic novel world into audio and you'd think well that has to be impossible um but people have gone bananas for it and they said you know this is so different this is so new this is really deep field audio and we're all being taken into the world of someone's imagination through comic books in a way that hasn't been done before. So I think um, experimental ways, of, I mean, there's, there's binaural sound, there's people starting to listen in 4D. I don't know if there was that wonderful, I saw it actually under lockdown, the Simon McBurney play that was done at the Barbican with uh, binaural sound. Everybody in the audience wore headphones and you could hear the sound all around you. He was creating on the stage. Um, I think, you know, as long as there are stories to be told and people who want to hear them told well, there will be a, a market for audiobooks and audio dramas. And, and I find it really cheering that we've sort of come out of the shadows and, and feel it now feels like a legitimate part of the entertainment industry rather than the bit that's tacked on at the side the cheap bit Tamsin thanks very much you're so welcome it's been a pleasure in episode three I'm talking with Mike Saraswat as we explore the entrepreneurial skills a voiceover artist needs to succeed Mike is the founder and CEO of Ecstasy an advertising branding and creative agency based in London as you know, or should know, VO is about far, far more than the voice. And Mike's advice will help you to take your voiceover career to the next rung of the ladder. I'm Guy Michaels. Thanks for listening. <laughs>